This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Like the Kokako, the saddleback or tieke belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have Professor Robert Patman, who's a knowledgeable particularly about um, diplomacy and overseas relations involving New Zealand. We're going to talk about ORC soon, but first, you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcasts and then going to Community or Chaos. Welcome, Robert. Good morning, Marvin. How are you? Quite good. I was feeling so good, I rode my bicycle this morning. That's a good sign. Robert, could you talk briefly about New Zealand's act declaring Aotearoa New Zealand as a nuclear-free state and its effect on New Zealand's reputation as being a small state with independent foreign policy? Yes, certainly. Um, New Zealand, um, in the 70s and the early 80s, a peace movement developed, and many people in that peace movement being deeply concerned by American and French nuclear testing. Uh, the Americans were conducting underground tests in the Marshall Islands, and um, the French were conducting atmospheric testing in the Pacific Islands region. Um, and uh, in, when the fourth Labour government came to power, it made a commitment uh, to pursue non-nuclear security. And that led uh, to a rift with the United States and um, if anything, the experience of clashing with the United States, uh, which actually cost, had severe consequences for New Zealand. New Zealand was effectively uh, expelled from ANZUS. Um, and uh, the experience, though, despite the tensions raised, I think set in motion a bipartisan consens- consensus in favour of um, non-nuclear security. Um, two things. Firstly, in 1987, after the attempt by the French um, to blow up the Rainbow Warrior, this was an act of state terrorism, which I think served 
uh, to rally people behind non-nuclear security, the acts of the French. That led to the embra- uh, signing of anti-nuclear legislation, which remains in place. And secondly, in the early 90s, Jim Bolger did flirt uh, when he was prime minister. The then national government did flirt with the idea of um, rescinding that legislation. But opinion polls indicated he would do that at his peril. In other words, a lot of people who were voting national had come fully behind the idea of non-nuclear security. And I think that largely remains the case now. Um, Any government which tried to undo our non-nuclear security legislation or move in a non-nuclear direction would risk, I think, um, some sort of political retribution at the ballot box. Uh, Don Brash in 2008 indicated New Zealand's non-nuclear legislation would be gone by lunchtime but he lost the election to Helen Clark. So I, I think that's a brief overview of our non-nuclear security. Uh, it did have some consequences, but overall, uh, I think, served to boost New Zealand's international reputation. Well, what's the history of the wider nuclear-free zone in the South Pacific? The Rangatoto. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly. Uh, the... Uh, Pacific Island states, which were even closer than New Zealand to the scene of French nuclear testing, decided to take an initiative of their own, um, and that was the the South, as it was then called, the South Pacific uh, Nuclear Free Zone, which prohibits the testing of nuclear weapons anywhere within that zone. Um, Virtually all the Pacific Island states, with the exception, I believe, of the Marshall Islands, signed up to that agreement. Australia and New Zealand also uh, played um, a role. New Zealand played a role in facilitating that treaty. Also signed up to it. Um, so, in a sense, yes, that that's an important development. And we should add, while we're at it, Marvin, um, that other important players. Uh, in the wider Indo-Pacific, have committed themselves in a non-nuclear security direction. Nine out of ten ASEAN states signed an agreement in 1995 to ban nuclear weapons in the zone covered by ASEAN. So um, if you take ASEAN and the Pacific Island states together, you've got quite a number of countries, more than 20, committing themselves to the sort of vision that New Zealand embraced in the mid-80s of non-nuclear security. Do you think the Marshall Islands exception is because of their close connection to the United States? In fact, the United States still administers part of the Marshall Islands. I think it is. And I think also Marshall Islands has uh, some compensation claims uh, outstanding to the United States. It has a good relationship with the United States, but it's made it quite clear there must be a settlement for the damage done to the island by American nuclear testing. So uh, they may, you know, it, it may be that uh, there's been some hesitation about um, going down the non-nuclear route in terms of treaty obligations because Marshall Islands perceives it has some outstanding issues that need to be resolved before it can take that step. What is Orcus Treaty, Security Treaty? Yes, uh, AUKUS was signed in September 2021. It's an enhanced security arrangement involving 
initially three countries, uh, the UK, the United States, and Australia. Uh, New Zealand wasn't invited to join AUKUS, um, presumably because of its non-nuclear security stance. What does AUKUS consist of? Uh, it consists of two key steps. Um, step one is a commitment to transfer nuclear-powered submarines to Australia uh, in the next three decades, something like 10 nuclear-powered submarines will be transferred to Australia at a cost somewhere between, to the Australian taxpayer, between $268 billion and $368 billion Australian dollars. So that's, a, that's the biggest, as, as Anthony Albanese, the Australian Prime Minister, put it, the biggest outlay on national security in Australia's history. The second key dimension or component um, is known as Pillar 2. That was Pillar 1, transferring um, nuclear power submarines to Australia, which is a long-term project. Pillar 2 um, is the sharing of state-of-the-art defence technologies, um, such as in the cyber sphere and also artificial intelligence, amongst the, the signatories to the, the AUKUS agreement. Um, AUKUS, what was the purpose of this military cooperation um it's in the words of the um the the signatories to AUKUS the three countries in September 21 when it was announced they were their cooperation was designed to maintain what they call the international rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific region um and the most recent development is since March uh Andrew Little the New Zealand defense minister um, caused quite a flutter here because he let it uh, be known that the Biden administration had now invited New Zealand to join Pillar 2 of AUKUS. And as you probably gathered, Malvin, quite a lively debate has transpired um, about whether New Zealand should join Pillar 2 of AUKUS. Um, and um, to date, the government hasn't definitely indicated one way or the other what will be the trajectory of travel in the future? Well, what's, what effect is this going to have on Australia? It's, the cost is going to go up, isn't it? Well, Paul Keating, a former Prime Minister, he finds himself a bit of a lone voice. Although um, I would not be surprised that the views he's articulating gain traction over time. Keating is dismissive of AUKUS. He says it's based on two falsehoods. The first falsehood is that he disputes that China is a systemic threat to Australia or the United States. Secondly, and by the way, when we spoke earlier about the official rationale of AUKUS to uphold the international rules-based order, what was not mentioned but was implicit was that China, Chinese assertiveness was seen as now the biggest threat in the Indo-Pacific region. Thus, it was necessary for the UK, the US and Australia to increasingly cooperate in the security area to counter that threat. Now, Keating disputes that. The second thing is, and this is actually, if I may say so, even more devastating, um, that he argues that this huge expenditure is unnecessary. And also, he says it's too slow. You know, Australia will only get um, the first 
uh, three or four nuclear power submarines in the mid 30s or probably between 30 2033 and 35 as he points out a lot can happen between now and then um and the next installment will come in the 2050s and it's coming at a huge price tag he argues that 50 diesel-powered new nuclear submarines would be more visible, more effective, and more practical, and much cheaper. So um, his, his view, his opposition, and it's very vociferous to AUKUS, um, is based on both uh, questioning the interpretation of the Chinese threat, but also um, the steps taken to counter that threat, which he regards as ex- too expensive and too inadequate. The um, these submarines will they be car- capable of carrying nuclear weapons and missiles? No, the Australian government stresses that they're nuclear powered, but they won't have nuclear weapons on board. Will they be? But, used- you know, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Your question has opened up a can of worms, though, because the Chinese were very quick to point out uh, that this was, in their view, um, a uh, a violation of the non-proliferation treaty. Now, to be fair, the UK, the US, and Australia have all carefully scrutinised the non-proliferation treaty before making this move and declare that it's that it's consistent with it. But what we can conclude is that the three English-speaking countries that constitute AUKUS have exploited a loophole in the non-proliferation treaty. But that creates a dangerous precedent. Um, will uh, the United States, for example, use that precedent to t- assist, uh, as been rumoured, um, Saudi Arabia in developing a domestic nuclear capability? Or what happens if China said, citing the AUKUS example, we want to transfer nuclear power submarines to Iran? How would the rest? How would the United States feel about that? But it, it would have. It couldn't possibly challenge it because, after all, it's doing that to Australia. So it also has big um, – it's raised big concerns uh, in the Pacific uh, island states. Vanuatu, for example, has demanded that Australia sign the treaty, which New Zealand and most of the Pacific island states have signed. In fact, many countries in the world, more than 55, the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. Uh, which was ratified in 2022. And uh, they want assurances from, coming back to your question, Pacific Island states want assurances that nuclear power submarines are not the thin end of the wedge for nuclear proliferation in the Indo-Pacific region. Does this bring the uh, confrontation with China more likely into a, a situation where there's danger of using nuclear weapons. Very difficult to say. Um, the, 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 what is interesting is that, you know, to some extent there is a danger that AUKUS actually strengthens China's narrative. We shouldn't forget that China's assertiveness has made China quite isolated within the Indo-Pacific. You may have gathered there's been a bit of a, showdown recently between the Philippines and China over differences over who's entitled to what in the South Pacific, uh, sorry, in the South China Sea. China claims 90% of that. That's disputed by seven other countries, including Vietnam and the Philippines. I imagine so, they don't really want 
the South China Sea to become like the Caribbean. No, but the thing is that other countries have legitimate claims to that. And, and the, the crucial point here, Marvin, is that China ignored the ruling of the Hague Tribunal in 2016, which it ruled in favor of the Philippines and uh, took issue with China's claim to 90% of the t- South China Sea. So China, um, like Russia, like the United States, didn't accept international law when it didn't coincide with their own national interests. So that's a big issue. But I, I think the danger of AUKUS is whether three English-speaking countries holding a paradigm of um, US-China rivalry being crucial to the world is accepted by countries which remain wary of of China but don't share that paradigm. For example, countries like Indonesia and Malaysia have been critical of AUKUS, not because uh, they're not concerned about Chinese assertiveness, they are, but because they don't believe it's a credible vehicle for countering Chinese influence in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. So I, I think that's an interesting point. Does the rule of law and the nuclear free treaty actually empower small nations to some extent? I, I think we'll, uh, we I know we've discussed this before, but I think many countries in the Pacific island states and the Indo-Pacific do not accept the paradigm on which AUKUS is based, namely that US-China rivalry will determine the future of the world. Um, this is, we shouldn't forget the Indo-Pacific, which includes the Pacific Island states, is 60% of the world's population and also the engine of the global economy. So in a sense, um, we're also, so there is skepticism about just how much influence these two rival great powers have. After all, we're confronted with problems globally which don't respect borders, whether it be transnational terrorism, whether it be climate change. By the way, climate change is a ma- the major national security issue for countries of the Pacific Island states. And uh, problems like COVID-19, none of these problems uh, and you could mention also problems of an expanded global economy. None of those problems respect borders. And therefore, uh, many countries are skeptical that US-China rivalry is the key to the w- future of the world. One would hope it isn't. <laughs> so does this actually... Would this empower New Zealand by joining? Would we have more influence over the Pacific Island nation, our neighbours? I, I have to be quite clear here. I am sceptical of AUKUS um, in, in the context of New Zealand joining it. I, that's to say, I do not. I think New Zealand loses more than it gains by joining AUKUS. It, you, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't be an entrepreneur that promotes the norm of non-nuclear security globally and then says, oh, by the way, we are joining Pillar 2 of an agreement which is transferring nuclear power submarines to Australia. But we will, you know, we will um, not compromise our non-nuclear credentials. Now, we may say that and we may mean it, but would other countries? 
I think many countries would interpret that as a backward step with New Zealand, if you like, sacrificing what is seen or at least compromising its independent stance and international affairs to be more closely aligned to Australia, the United States and the UK. And um, that I think that's the perception. And I think New Zealand actually is more important. You know, I mean, this is the, strategically, New Zealand is of more value to the AUKUS members outside the alliance than it is within because it promotes things they cannot. We shouldn't forget that two members of AUKUS, the UK and the US, are members, permanent members of the Security Council. It's the Security Council with the use of the veto which has perpetuated a lawless situation internationally. Um, Russia, a permanent member, violated the UN Charter by invading Ukraine. The United States violated the UN Charter by illegally invading Iraq. And China, as we've just seen, didn't hesitate to snub international law when it came into conflict with its claims over the South China Sea. So that's why New Zealand wants to reform the UN Security Council, and so do most middle and small states. And uh, I think it's important that New Zealand retains the ability to champion that cause, and being part of AUKUS may constrain that ability to champion that very important issue. Isn't one of the things we could learn from Iraq and from Ukraine is how badly we need a strong UN that isn't uh, held around. Well, what we need is a, what we need me- is a, a functional. Yeah, you're right. In a world in which problems increasingly don't respect borders, we need an authoritative and functional UN Security Council. A, a scholar said many years ago, "Why does war keep occurring?" The answer is because there's nothing to prevent it. And at the moment, the veto is a major obstacle to authoritative international solutions to problems. And uh, it, it's a major issue. And uh, it, it's important that the small and middle powers, let's be quite clear, the rest of the world is paying the price for five countries having an exclusive privilege, which is to block mm. anything they do not like in the world. And um, I don't think that situation is sustainable in the 21st century. And I don't think we should be, we should become part of alignments which may be trying to sustain that situation. Well, I'm going to play some music and then we'll come back. Thank you.
seven now as I was then When children die, they do not grow My hair was scorched by swirling flame My eyes grew dim, my eyes grew blind Death came and turned my bones to dust And that was scattered by the wind. I need no Sweets, nor even bread I ask for nothing for myself For I am dead, for I am dead All that I ask is that for peace You work today, you work today So that the children of the world may live and grow and laugh and play Our friends, uh, we're talking with Robert Patman about ORC, the uh, security treaty between the United States, Great Britain and Australia and whether we want to join it and um, we have to think about all the security issues in the world when we think about alliances, don't we? I mean, it isn't just the competition between China and uh, America, or even between Russia and America. There are the security threats. There's climate change, there's the insecurity, the insecurity of American politics. Would you like to talk about these things? First, and then we can move on to climate change. Um, I, I think this is an issue that must weigh heavily for New Zealand decision makers when wrestling with this issue of whether New Zealand should join Pillar 2. I, I think... Um, there are good reasons for New Zealand standing aloof, even when it has a good ally like the Biden administration in power in the White House. I mean, New Zealand basically is quite comfortable with the Biden administration. They see to eye to eye on a range of international issues. But if Biden lost the 2024 election and Mr. Trump or someone with an agenda similar to Mr. Trump, such as DeSantos, came to power, um, that both DeSantis and Trump have little time for an international rules-based order on which New Zealand depends. In fact, Mr. Trump attacked a key institution for New Zealand's national interests, which was the World Trade Organization, when he was in power as president. So that's another issue that New Zealand decision-makers need to ponder 
which is the volatility of American politics. And by the way, it's not just someone in New Zealand saying this. Richard Haas, who is a conservative Republican strategist, was asked recently, he's a foreign policy expert, uh, Professor Haas was asked recently, um, where did he see the, the biggest security threat to the United States in the world? And he replied, it's here in the United States. And he's so concerned that he's now written a book about the obligations of citizenship in the United States. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the volatility of American politics. Now, on climate change, that is a crucial issue. And it, as we touched on earlier, Marvin, uh, though countries of the Pacific Island states in particular, one thing that unites them is the recognition um that rising sea levels occasioned by uh, a warming climate um, is the biggest threat they face. And therefore, they're not going to uh, become pawns in superpower rivalry and lose sight of that threat. So the best way to influence um, or to have good relations with the Pacific Island states is to help them address or ameliorate the consequences of the problem, climate change, which they, they see as their biggest national security threat. And um, it's not just a national security threat for the Pacific Island states. It's most immediate for them. Two of them could, of course, could be um, the, the actual, it could be their national existence could be threatened within two decades. But for other countries, we're also seeing including New Zealand, the effects of um, the changing nature of the, the climate. So I, I do think this is an issue which, let's be quite clear, the United States and China, even if they suddenly fell in love, could not solve this problem acting together. You need buy-in from everyone, every state in the world. And um, interestingly, many of the problems we face in the 21st century actually resemble climate change in that sense, that most of the problems can't be solved by countries acting multilaterally or even bilaterally. It needs self-interested international cooperation. So, you know, in a sense, this is a challenge for everyone. In some ways, isn't an arms race almost um, Beside the point, when you when you talk about climate change, because one of the greatest uses of carbon is actually its military spending, not only building the weapons and so Absolutely. on, but and practicing them. The term ec uh, ecocide has been used in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has been an environmental disaster of a huge magnitude. And uh, entire forests have been devastated in Ukraine. And forests, of course, are very important. In, 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 with the growing warming of the climate. So decarbonization of the world is a strategic priority and, um, uh, you know, um, acquiring ever more military capabilities does not solve that problem. And the mismatch between what we think constitutes security and what is actually needed, I think, was highlighted with... Uh, the uh, advent of COVID-19 in 2020, the richest country in the world, which spends more than $800 billion on military capabilities, namely the United States, had the highest number 
of deaths from COVID-19 in the world. So despite spending all that money on making themselves secure, um, they were still very vulnerable to a pandemic. So no one should get any satisfaction from that, but it does show that we do need clear, clear eyed thinking about how can we safeguard humanity in a realistic way going into the 21st century. You know, what's happening in the, in the Hawaiian Islands and the main island of Hawaii right now, that's climate change. The, the dependency of China and India on the Himalayan glaciers, uh, that's, they will have starvation and lack of water if those glaciers melt. It seems to me almost irrational to be spending more on the military than we are on climate change. I'm well, not saying that, <laughs> that you can change this instantly. No. But, but I do think that many people in all walks of life may be ahead of the politicians when it comes to climate change. And um, I do think those parties which are forward-leading in climate change may have greater opportunity to press their case than at any time in the past. Um, New Zealand has set itself the ambitious goal of basically only having renewable energy by 2030 and eliminating other sources of energy. So um, whether we can achieve that or not, we are exceptionally well-placed because a high proportion of our energy needs are met by hydro um, means, and that's really good. But um, So if any country could make themselves completely uh, sustainable on renewable energy sources, it might be New Zealand. But there's a lot of work to do. And, um, it, yeah, it is. it's going to take leadership, Marvin, I think. Um, and at the moment, politicians tend to err on the side of caution um, when it comes to things like climate change, we've seen, particularly in the superpowers, repeatedly ducking of the issue. Um, for example, we've known since the early 80s, um, and oil companies knew since the early 80s, that human beings with their carbon emissions were heating the planet. Um, but they chose to ignore that on the grounds that the to counter that, the economic consequences would too, be too great. I think people realise now that the economic consequences of inaction in relation to climate change are, are, are got the greatest price humanity could pay. So I, I'm hopeful that we are beginning to see um, quite a shift. I mean, let's be quite clear. At least in, in, in terms of rational decision-making, nothing less then a paradigm shift in energy need or energy use uh, will suffice in order to meet this major challenge. We simply cannot go on mm. with fossil fuels uh, if the planet is to remain a place fit for uh, life. Well, somehow that must involve pressure on the oil, and particularly oil companies, but also coal, because we know that the oil companies aren't actually uh, 
producing less oil and they're not selling less oil. Mm. Uh, we found lots of ways of um, having alternative energy. We, I think we've made good progress there. But at the same time, we've increased our energy use in such a way that it hasn't reduced carbon, not because we haven't been using other systems like um, panels for electricity and wind. and Yeah. It's that um, we've, much of the world has increased their use of energy. Yeah. And somehow that has to be turned around, both dropping our use of energy and finding other, other sources. And that would, that would yeah. take a real shift socially and politically. And we, we need a leader that, I get, to me, this is one of the tragedies of uh, the um, Ukraine war, the invasion of Ukraine. Because I saw, I think there were strong possibilities of that kind of leadership coming out of the European Union. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's. Uh, I do think liberal democracies are the best hope for dealing with this problem because authoritarian regimes have pretty deplorable environmental records. Also, their leaderships are not responsive to public opinion in the same way as liberal democracies. The crucial thing is for people power to be exerted on this issue. After all, people suffer the... It'll be our future generations who pay the price if we ne neglect this problem now. And there are a lot of people who remain convinced uh, that climate change is some sort of conspiracy by globalists to artificial, artificially enhance international cooperation. And that there's no problem. We're just suffering normal weather. Now, <laughs> 99.5% of climate scientists in the world disagree with that view. But when you put that evidence to people who are skeptics on climate change, they simply dismiss it, saying experts always get it wrong. So it, it's a very difficult thing. I do think um, uh, I'm hoping that younger people will be um, more outspoken because they're the ones who are going to be living with this. And it's very important. I do think there's things we can do. Uh, you mentioned um, things like solar panels. There's a range of things governments can do to incentivize people moving in this direction. Most people, and I, my, I, I've got no scientific evidence to back this up, Marvin. My sense is that many people would jump at the opportunity to have an electric car if only they could afford it. Oh, so, yes. Right. So there's no there's no sort of, if you like, ideological commitment to retaining a car powered by petrol or gas. But it is it, simply the economics for most people of limited means. That's the majority. They have make their choices on the basis of their budget. And so governments can play a role. They can't subsidize hugely, but they can create incentives. Um, and um, it, it, I, I think we are in the midst of a huge energy revolution that's only going to intensify in the, the next decade or so. It, it, I think significant steps, interestingly, were taken by Mercedes and BMW and General Motors, major car producers, when they signaled they were phasing out the production 
of uh, cars which depend on petrol in the next five years. And that, that decision was announced about two years ago. So we are in the midst of a huge change. Um, and, you know, you can you can say the same about aeroplanes as well. We We need to move to a situation where aeroplanes are not being powered by um, the, the current, you know, get, uh, petrol and, and gas. Well, some people would say this doesn't apply to New Zealand because of our isolation, but for many places in the world, a good train, fast train system would would be the solution. It's establishing it, though. I think our train network... I said that's why... So I'm hesitating. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an international We've neglected it too long. It's probably been in neglect for too long. We've got an excellent road network in New Zealand, but um, I agree with you. Ideally, it would be nice to enhance our, our train network. Uh, I, I think I'd only been in New Zealand a little while, and then the train connection between Christchurch and Dunedin was cancelled. Right. It was the Southerner, wasn't it? Yep, it was the Southerner. Was a, shortly after we moved to, from and, Wanganui um, to Dunedin, they cut it. Yeah, but we do seriously need to think about can we get some of the freight that's currently on the roads, you know, using train um, network? Because it's a lot of wear and tear on our roads because of these very heavy vehicles. So, it, it, and that's that's you know um, additional expense on infrastructure. How much? What? How do we model our relationship to China? I mean, we. China um, it's not a it's their internal system has become more authoritarian in the last ten years. But it's, it's been authoritarian. I mean China's a one party state. And Yeah, but the know, one party's become more authoritarian. One too. leader's become more authoritarian. Yeah, they've allowed they set up a system for a while where your leader couldn't stay in power for more than ten years. That's correct. And, and when he, they broke that, yeah. it's a, But don't, it's very, don't run away with the idea he's got no opposition in China because he has. And uh, the opposition's in the Central Committee of the Chinese ruling Communist Party. So um, I think there's been overhyping of Chinese, the Chinese threat. Now, don't get me wrong. China has got global ambitions to be the dominant power. But Many of us have ambitions that we can never realize, and maybe China is in that situation. Why? Well, the U.S. Defense Secretary recent, uh, last year described China as a systemic threat. But is it? it? China has at least two, maybe three things going against it. Firstly, it remains economically dependent on crucial Western markets. China's rise to superpower status was facilitated through trade with the United States, with the EU, uh, with Japan. And that reality is still there. So China actually, you know, people talk about China being a revisionist state. Um, I'm skeptical about that because Chinese leaders realize that if they did anything to upset the international economic order of which they benefited so well, it could politically disadvantage their own country. After all, the Chinese leadership, the communist leadership, benefits from economic growth. If they took any steps which interrupted that economic 
growth, it, it could have a political price. The second thing is that China, and come back to your authoritarian point, China remains a deeply unattractive political model internationally. Yes, what you know, would be authoritarian leaders like to partner with China because it means that they they can use Chinese assistance and no questions are asked about what they're doing domestically. But for many countries like New Zealand, Australia, they're happy to do business with China, but they certainly won't be borrowing Chinese political ideas or using them. So China actually, uh, and the other, the third thing is China remains deeply unpopular in the region where it's located. And that's not a good sign if you want to be a global power. So all I'm saying, uh, Marvin, is I think we need a sense of proportion about how much China is a global threat to the United States. I think many American commentators and many here have exaggerated the Chinese threat. I don't think China is poised to displace America as the leading country in the world anytime soon. Do you think, what are the odds of the going from a, a bilateral system, which we seem to have right now, to a multilateral system where many well, I don't think we have got a bilateral. I mean, this is what we were talking about earlier and why AUKUS bad bad piece of strategy because it's based on a false assumption. It's based on the assumption the world is bipolar. There's two principal poles of power, and one pole of power, represented by China, is is threatening the other pole pole of power, headed by the US. I don't accept that. that. We live in a world where the United States is militarily dominant but economically, power is now diffused throughout the world. And it's not just the Chinese economy that's vibrant in the Indo-Pacific. Countries like Vietnam, that, that has a very vibrant economy. So in short, the international system is in a state of transition. It's not bipolar. It's not unipolar. It's a hybrid system. Militarily, the United States dominant economically we have more of a multipolar system so in short we have a hybrid international system it might be described as a uni uh, hyphen multipolar system it's a bit of both (coughs) the problem is that if you arrange your policy on the basis that we are in a bipolar era just like the cold war then i think there's going to be a mismatch between the strategy and the outcome. Does the New Zealand have a special role in encouraging a multipolar system, recognise a multipolar world? I think New Zealand has um, a distinctive role in trying to fight for the rights of small states and middle powers. I'm not convinced New Zealand's a small state, by the way, Marvin. I think it's more of a a minor power. After all, we're the same size as Finland and and, um, uh, Norway in population terms, and we're bigger than the UK in land space terms. So 
I'm not sure we're a, the smally, teeny, weeny state or the best little country in the world, as Chris Hipkins describes us. I'm not sure we're that little. Um, we've certainly got some international influence, but we have got limited capabilities, sure. Um, but I do think our role should be to try to empower the middle powers, like Australia and Canada, um, as well as the states, to have a greater voice in international politics. It's wrong that the world's fortunes depend on the United States and China, which, after all, can't fix the world's problems. Um, if they could run the world, they would, but they cannot. So it's important, I think, that New Zealand acts as a bit of a playmaker to bring more voices to the table than there currently is. Of course, it, New Zealand can't do that on its own. It can only do that collectively, acting in concert with other countries which share that vision. Um, I, I do think New Zealand has a, you know, is a bit of an international entrepreneur of ideas. And I think one idea that we need to really push is reform of the UN Security Council. And I, I think the other idea is that we also have to, I think, try to strengthen the rules-based order, not just simply uphold it, but to strengthen it um, so that countries have many more obstacles to invading their neighbours than they currently face. Do you think that in some ways we might be more used to the United States and even to China as a country that's quite friendly with the United States, has a good relations with China, but is not totally in a military alliance with the United States, but a country that's certainly in the democratic tradition. Yeah, I do. And I think that has been the position of New governments for the last decade or so, perhaps longer. Um, our influence depends in not being in an overly tight grouping. Yes, we're a member of Five Eyes, and we share a lot with the United States, the UK, and Australia. But the emphasis should be on uh, unity rather than uniformity. We don't have to be in lockstep with the United States, or for that matter, with China. Uh, they, as I, for reasons we've gone through, um, many countries do not accept either the US political model or the Chinese political model. And so we have, uh, I think, um, a role to play, not only to try to build dialogue between the US and China, and there's some hopeful steps there. Anthony Blinken was recently in China and spoke about um, he didn't want China and the U.S. economies to decouple. Um, I think that's a hopeful step. Um, but I, I think the major role that New Zealand can play um, is to try to become a voice uh, to encourage smaller and middle powers to exert greater agency in international politics. It's not just up to the superpowers. And, you know, it's very easy to blame the superpowers for everything. But actually, um, smaller and middle powers also have a big responsibility. If if superpowers can't fix the problems that face us, then other people have to step up and play their role. 
we can play a role. We can, you know, contribute to that process. What are your hopes for New Zealand in the medium future? Um, I'm I'm an optimist about New Zealand. I I I think that we we've undergone this remarkable redefinition uh, of our national identity in the last thirty years. I think that process, a sort of fusion of Pakeha New Zealanders and Maori culture and language, um, will continue. Um, and I, I do think um, we have something that's very special uh, in New Zealand uh, that can be of international significance. Um, you know, the, the, we're a country, we have our problems, and we're trying to face them. And I think that's an important example. Um, and there's lots to be done. It, what I'm saying here is we're a work in progress. No one can say that our democracy is perfect. Um, it, it, it's being fine-tuned. But I do think the example of trying to honestly address past grievances is is one that other countries should also consider because, let's face it, um, um, we, we uh, Maori in this country have faced serious of injustices um, and there still are in many injustices. There's too many... Maori people incarcerated, for example, as a proportion of the population. So there's lots of things to be done here. But I do think that New Zealand, because it's got links with the Pacific, the Polynesia, and also with Europe and North America, um, does have, if you like, a lot to offer. You know, New Zealand's one of those rare international actors. It's it's a long way from everywhere, which means it hasn't got an axe to grind on many international issues. And we like to pride ourselves on standing for a fair go in New Zealand. It would be good if we could also echo that sentiment internationally, because I think you and I, Marvin, could quickly reel off a number of situations in the world where people are being treated anything but fairly. And so it's important that norm of fairness is articulated. I think New Zealand can contribute, even in a modest way, to amplifying that amplifying that message. Well, thanks a lot, Robert. I enjoyed the discussion with you in it immensely. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.